Okay, well, I want to uh, begin just by reminding you of uh, tonight, which is uh, Reformation Night. Uh, it's really going to be, in some regards, um, part two of my message this morning. I've got some thoughts to share. Uh, um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how, how this morning goes. But uh, today we're, we're talking about uh, Martin Luther. Uh, you know, he's, he's a guy who, uh, 15, whatever it was, 15, 17... Uh, nailed the 95 Theses in the Castle Church of the Wittenberg Church. And, uh, you know, that was in two days from now, it's going to be the, the 500th anniversary of that event. And, and really it was a, a watershed moment in the life of uh, the world, in the life of Reformation history, or as, as people like to say it, Luther nailed it. And uh, indeed, indeed he did. He really, he, he placed his finger right onto the heart of the problem of the Roman Catholic Church. That is the problem of indulgences. And uh, we'll deal with that problem tonight uh, So we, we talk about things. This morning, um, what I'd like to do is even uh, just, just talk a, a message entitled, Lessons from the Life of Luther. Now, normally we just open the Bible. And uh, we, just, we just read a passage and exposit that passage. And today, of, of all the, whatever, hundreds of sermons, I don't know how many I've preached here at Rock Valley Bible Church, 600, 700, 800, I've never done this before, so you will forgive me if you think I'm, I'm in error. Uh, but we'll take a life of Martin Luther. We're going to ap- apply some scripture to that, and mostly it's going to be applicational. And by the way, if you want to know, I'm, I'm really just preaching the gospel to you, all right? So uh, that's what we're doing this morning. As we look at, at Martin Luther, as I give applications from his life, and because when it comes to him, it's important to know that, that his impact is great upon our lives. Uh, when Eric Metaxas wrote his biography on Luther, he entitled it, Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world. Because really, that's, that's what Martin Luther did. He changed the world. See, Martin Luther is not just significant for church history, he's also significant for world history as well. L- listen to what Metaxas said. He said, Luther's writings and actions so altered the landscape of the modern world that much of what we take for granted may be traced directly back to him, the, quirk, the quirky genius of Wittenberg. Like in other words, right? He's, he's saying that Luther's influence has been so big on us that there's many things that we just assume, um, but it's because of him that they are. And one of the big things that Metaxas points out is the individual's responsibility before the Lord. See, before Luther's day, people were accountable to the church and, and to the leaders, right? primarily, rather than to the Lord. In other words, right? But, but before the days of Luther... People looked to the church for guidance. They, they looked to people for guidance. And, and they did what the church told them what to do. Figuring, after all, that the, the church is the people who have the keys of the kingdom and they know all things. In fact, even they read the Bible for the people and told the people what to do and what to believe. But, of course, with Martin Luther came the idea that, no, you're not responsible to the, the priests. and, and all, You are ultimately responsible to the Lord. Right, freedom of religion in many ways can be traced back to Martin Luther. Metaxas continues, like after Luther, suddenly the individual had not only the freedom and possibility of thinking for himself, 
but the weighty responsibility before God of doing so. So not only freedom to think for yourself, that's why the Bible came in the uh, original language, that's why people wanted to read the Bible, but not only, and not only liberty, but also responsibility we all have before the Lord. And have impacted world history far more than any of us know. But church history was impacted as well. Uh, this can be seen in, in Lucas Cranach's painting entitled um, The Vineyard of the Lord. Now, now Cranach was a, a, a painter at the time of Luther, and he did a lot, of, a lot of paintings, and he was really the PR guy for Luther, right? He didn't have photographers, right? He was the press um, painter, I guess, back then. And uh, here's the vineyard of the Lord. It, it consists of a, of a vineyard with a, the fences all around it, and, and down the middle there's this path and it separates two workers, right? On the left, you have representatives from the Roman Catholic Church, the popes and cardinals and, and priests and bishops and, and monks, and, and they're all hard at work. I've just taken a little bit of a relief, so you might, might see how, how they're hard at work, and you see they're, they're wielding their axes, and they're, they're wielding their sticks, and, and they're hard at work at destroying the vineyard. They're tearing down the fences, right? They're burning the fence posts. They are destroying the plants, and here, if you look down a little bit, they are throwing rocks into the well. Which, of course, you know anything. You throw rocks into the well, the water doesn't rise, and you can't use that water. The water can't spill out anymore. And on the right of the painting, you see the reformers. And rather than destroying the vineyard, they are, are cultivating it. And you can see Luther right there with his, his rake. right? And he's, he's raking things up, and he's pulling out the weeds. And there's, there's Mighty Martin right there on the, on the left. And you can see the, the water being drawn up out of the, the well, right? being able to nourish the plants. Because rather than destroying the well, they're, they're taking the water out of it and, and using it to build, build up. And down at the bottom of the painting, you see the religious elite, the priests and cardinals and popes, all, all asking Jesus for a handout. Okay, give me, give me the money, give me the money. And, and as if Jesus owed them money for their part in taking care of the vineyard, but they weren't really taking care of the vineyard, and Jesus owed them nothing. That's why he didn't give them anything. And this painting, of course, is an allegory of, of the church in the days of Luther. That their labors in the vineyard is a common metaphor that Jesus often used in the kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven can be, can be likened to a vineyard. And sometimes you've got workers in the vineyard, and, he, and the king goes away, and he comes back, and he gives an account. And, and, and the religious leaders on the left, the, the Catholic popes and priests, right, when the Lord comes back, would utterly destroy them because they've neglected the care of the vineyard. But those on the right are, are doing well. And, and the, the vineyard represents the church. The vine, of course, represents Christ. And the water, even you can see, is the living water to give life to the vineyard. And rather than cultivating this life-giving vine, the religious leaders were destroying it, destroying the well, and all the while seeking to get wealthy from their work while the reformers cared for the vineyard, worked for it. They worked to see the vine grow. They worked to cultivate the life of the church. And when Christ would come back, of course, they would receive the reward. And Martin Luther was in the, the center of it all. Indeed, the legacy of Martin Luther is great. He rediscovered God and he changed the world. And on this anniversary morning of the Reformation, I want to talk about lessons in the life of Luther and Really, one of the greatest applications, even before we get into the life of Luther, is this, is that Martin Luther has made an impact on your life. He has. Whether you know it or not, Luther has impacted your life. Just one. 
the fact that you are here this morning in a Protestant church is an impact of Martin Luther. The fact that you're not going to a, a Catholic church with, with robes and garbs and, and icons and all the, all the religious paraphernalia. Now, the fact that we sang songs in worship today goes back to Martin Luther. Because before the days of Luther, it was just the, the precinct and maybe a choir. The congregation was t- entirely passive. But the active congregation has to do with, with Luther. The fact that you have a Bible in many ways, goes back to Martin Luther. Now it goes, goes to others, Wycliffe and Tyndale for sure. But Luther worked hard to get the Bible in the language of the people and just so convinced of that. The fact that our, our worship service is, is geared towards the preaching of the Word and, 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 and preaching and proclaiming, that's a, an impact of Martin Luther because before Luther came, it was all about the grace you can get through the host. It, it was more, more transactional and not, not really addressed to the mind, but more like a, a religious kind of service devoid of real teaching. That's some of the impact that Martin Luther has made on your life. And, and, and I just say, are, are you thankful for that? And hopefully through my message you, today and tonight even especially, you might just even think about the, the impact. I want you to be thankful for, for his life. And just to give you perspective, right? I want you to think about someone in your life who's been impactful spiritually on you. Right? So maybe a, uh, a parent or maybe a brother or maybe a pastor, or maybe a friend, or, or maybe an author. I want you to think about just some faces that come before your mind and how thankful you are for them. And I say likewise, you should be thankful for Martin Luther. In fact, I just want to pray and thank the Lord for his life and what the Lord did. So Father, we, we are thankful for Luther, not, not exalting him in any sense a different than, than we are because, in fact, he was not... God, he was very unrefined, very boorish, God, but very bold, and you used him in many ways. And Father, we, we don't even know in many ways the, the, the trajectories of the church that he set in motion, God, that have come down to us, but we are thankful that you used people. We're, we're thankful that you used people. God, you used pastors and parents and brothers and sisters and friends and co-workers to point us to Jesus. You use authors and singers, God, to, to point us to Christ. You use preachers, and God, you use people. And so we, we are thankful for who you have used in our lives and what you have done. And Lord, would pray as we just continue to think about the life of Martin Luther, God, that you would, God, help us to grow in our, our thankfulness to you for him. Not a perfect man in any way, but one used of you to help redirect things of the church. He rediscovered God and, and changed the world. Amen. Well, in talking about the, the life of Luther, a good place really start is with his parents. There's Hans and Margaret. I don't even know how you say, it, say that. Margaret. Is that a good German name? I, I, don't, I don't even know. But they were hardworking people from Eisleben, Saxony, and, uh, which is modern-day Germany. They lived in the 1400s, which we call the, the Middle Ages. Um, during the time when the church dominated life and culture, um, you know, people listened to the church and whatever the church said they did. There was many superstitions going around that time. The, the plagues had decimated lots of people. There was a lot of fear of death at the time. And Luther was born on November 10th, 1483 in Eisleben. He was taken that next morning and baptized. The 
St. Peter and St. Paul's church. Soon afterwards, within the year, his family moved to Mansfield, where his father Hans managed several mines. So he's a manager of several mines. Maybe he owned some. He owned several. He he leased some of them. At least he was a he was a wealthy, well-to-do, upper-middle-class person, you might say. And they had the means to send Luther to the university, and so he went to the University of Erfurt, a very prestigious uh, university, good-sized town. And um, Luther graduated a master's degree in 1508, a master's degree in, in law. And because of the Middle Ages and because of the dominance of the church, when you think about a, a law degree today, it's a little bit different back then because a law degree today is like devoid of all religious emphasis. But the University of Erfurt, not impacted yet by the Renaissance, is very intertwined with theology. And so listen to what Roland Bainton, the chief biographer of Luther, said. He said this, Luther's studies all impinged on theology. And the master's degree for which Luther was preparing for the law could have equipped him equally for the cloth. The entire training of homeschool university was designed to instill the fear of God and the reverence for the church. So in other words, even though he studied law, Baton argues that his study for the law equipped him every bit as much as studying religion would have. Because it was so saturated, this all of life intertwined with medieval theology. And during his days of law study, Luther was pricked of conscience and tender of conscience, and he was troubled for his soul. The, the plague was, was hitting many, and, and, and he feared death. But beyond physical death, he, he even feared his eternal death. And he wanted to do all that was in his power to ensure that he would be in heaven. And, and his questions always lingered. Had he done enough? Had he done enough? I mean, he, he wasn't even studying theology. He was studying law. And is, is that the right thing to do? And he wrestled. And, and uh, he had doubts and concerns. He, he went through seasons of exaltation, depression. And uh, for about six months, um, towards the end of his degree, he was experiencing this time of depression and uh, he then went home to visit his parents in July of 1505. He, was, he went to home to visit them in Erfurt, and he was on his way back in July of 1505, caught in this terrible storm. And so he's got this depression, wondering about what to do, about God, does he have enough? And, and here is the storm. He feared for his life, and fearing for his life, he cried out, St. Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. Who's St. Anne? Do any of you know who St. Anne is? Except Avon knows. No one knows. Do you know, Janet? Who's St. Anne? Mary's mother. And she is a patron saint who is known for um, one who protects from storms. It's appropriate that she, he cried out to St. Anne. But beyond that, she is the patron saint of minors. Okay, so I hope you start connecting some things that, that Hans was over these, these mines. He was a, a managing over several of those. In, in a Catholic tradition, a patron saint means that this saint, this Mary's mother, was committed to pray for miners. And so throughout the town, right, where, where they were in Mansfield, there, w- there would have been images and statues and shrines all around. And in fact, even Stephen Nichols says that... Uh, they probably had a shrine of St. Anne in their home. Like many Catholics today have a, 
have a little statuette of Mary in their home. But she was one who's known to pray for minors. Now, I don't believe that, okay? I don't think that the people go up and then they pray for things. But such is an indication of his uh, superstition of the time, is that he would pray to, to the St. Anne. And uh, you know, certainly, as Luther knew of her, being the son of a copper miner, and taught to pray, and I, I'm sure he prayed to her often. So this wasn't the first time he prayed to St. Anne. As Stephen Nichols says, she was the only mediator that Luther knew. Because Anne, she, she was the one to look over minors. And so when the storm came, Luther naturally cried out to her. And uh, in the midst of his superstition, that kind of shows you where his theology was at that time. Well, news, right? Luther didn't die in the storm. And uh, he kept his vow. So at 21 years of age... There's, there's Anne, I guess. I, I skipped that picture. But there is there's St. Anne teaching Mary her Bible. That's a, a common picture. And so Luther, at 21 years of age, entered into the monastery. August 1505. So this is a month after his, his storm. He took the oath of a monk and joined St. Augustine's monastery in Erfurt where he dedicated himself wholeheartedly to the service of God. And while in the monastery, right, Luther learned really several lessons. And, and, and I've just, this morning, I've just pulled out five lessons for us to learn from Luther's uh, lessons that he learned in the monastery, all leading him to Christ. And so that's where the gospel comes in because this is all like his, his spiritual journey until the time he, he came to know Christ. First of all, Luther had a zeal for God. I mean, the Augustinian uh, monastery was a strict monastery and, and very serious uh, about things. And his time in the monastery, saturated fastings and prayers and vigils and self-denials and masses and services and, and, and meetings and Bible reading and meditations, just all that. And, and Luther didn't just go through the motions. He, he wasn't like a, a kid at a Christian school who's kind of, yeah, okay, just accepts it all. No, he, he was full in. He had it all. And looking back, here's what Luther said. Okay, and I'm sure you recognize this quote. I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of the order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. And he said, all my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. And if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and reading and other work. And I just say this, the, the zeal that Martin Luther had, there, there's no reason why we likewise can, shouldn't have this zeal. The Lord Jesus gave the greatest commandment. He said this, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's, of course, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, the, the, the great Shema, hear Israel, our Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that's all that Luther was doing. And so one of the great things about Luther is that he just, he really believed the Bible, right? He really believed that you should love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And he, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried. Now, it was misdirected during his early years. And when he understood the grace of God in Christ, he, he continued on. The rightly directed for the glory of God, but, but we can do that. We can sanctify His zeal for God. We should have a zeal for God as well. That's what Luther had. Here's another lesson, lesson a fear of God. Now, one of the main reasons why Luther entered the monastery was his fear of the Lord. 
And, and nowhere is this best illustrated than in his first mass. After about a year of training in the, the monastery, uh, Luther was ready and trained to, to celebrate this sacrament. Now, you, you need to understand that right, the, the Roman Catholic Church believes in a doctrine called transubstantiation. Trans-changing, substance, transubstantiation, changing the substance, right? In other words, when celebrating the Lord's Supper, the, the priest lifts up the bread, the host, if you've been to a Catholic church, you've seen this. I know that whenever I go, and sometimes, sometimes we go on vacation to expose our kids to just, I would call the awfulness of the Catholic church, but the, the priest raises his bread, and, and, and when he says, we offer unto thee the living and true eternal God, oftentimes a little bell that rings, and all of a sudden, the Catholic Church believes that that little wafer turns into the body of Jesus. It changes substance. And the wine in the cup, the wine changes substance. And then the bread is treated as if it were Jesus, placed down, knelt to, bowed to, and honored. And Jesus said, take this and eat this. Because it's Jesus. We get to eat Jesus. They really believe this. This is, a, this is at the heart and soul of the Catholic Church. This is, this is deep embedded into this. And by the way, if you go to the Catholic Church, don't eat that. Right? And they say you shouldn't, and I say you shouldn't either. It's idolatry, and it's wrong, and it's misleading. And, and so they so much treat this as the body and blood of Jesus that when it's done, they don't throw it away. They put it in the back in this urn, this altar, that can be pulled out at any time because this has been changed in substance. Well, when Martin Luther did this for the first time, you've got you to think about his superstitions. Lifting his host to heaven, a holy fear of God engrossed him. And he lifted it up, and he was unable to continue. He was shaking. I think he probably fell to the ground. He was helped down from the altar and never finished the Mass. And, and, and I just point that out to say that it's because of his fear of God that that he was, he was presenting God himself and coming into the presence of God. God is the one, you can't come into his presence without your face being veiled. No man can see me and live. He dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And Luther had this fear of God because he was just kind of encountering him in this moment. And listen to how Luther describes his event. At these words, right, the, the words becomes the body and blood of Christ, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. And I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince, who am I that I should lift mine eyes or raise my hand to the divine majesty? Right? He's thinking that bread is becoming Jesus, and then even looking at that was too much for him. He said, the angels surround the Lord, and at his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, pygmy say, I want this, and I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. In his superstition, he was struck. And, and, I, and I think it's really, he understood the fear of the Lord. That's what, what brought him into the monastery. And we likewise can imitate and can learn from a fear of God as well. It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, The, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That's Proverbs 8, verse 13, that, that Luther really did. He hated his, his evil. He hated his sin because he, he so feared God. 
And this is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That is the most fundamental aspect of religion is this, that we should fear God. We should fear the one who created the world. We should fear the one who gives life and breath and all things. We should fear the one, as Psalm 5 says, I hate evildoers and I will remove them from my presence. Because just as the Lord has given life, so also can God destroy it. And we should live in the present reality of God all of our days. Just like Luther did. Well, here's the next lesson from the life of Luther. Not only a zeal for God, a, a fear of God, but he also had a knowledge of sin. He, he knew himself. If the, monastery taught, if the monastery taught Luther anything, it taught him of his own sin. Um, I mean, certainly Luther knew his own, own sin. I mean, that, that's, that's why in some regards he went to the monastery to try to sanctify his life and clean it up. But the monastery even brought forth his sin in a, in a greater way. As Martin Luther tried to live each day in holiness, with others seeking holiness, he, he found himself unacceptable before the Lord. I mean, he, he tried to live as acceptable before the Lord with all his might, but he knew that he didn't live up to God's standard. Listen to what he said about um, the Sermon on the Mount. Luther said, this word is too high, and it's too hard that anyone should fulfill it. This is proved not only by the Lord's word, but by our own experience and feeling. Take any upright man or woman, and he'll get along very nicely with those who do not provoke him. But let someone proffer him only the slightest irritation, and he will flare up in anger. If not against friends and against enemy, flesh and blood cannot rise above it. And what he's talking about is just, yeah, you, you can live and you can do okay and on the outside, but, but people can provoke you so easily and then there's just a, an anger and a rage or some fighting or something. Just sin just comes out of us so easily. And Luther saw his sin. And what, what I think is more when I talk about knowledge of sin, he was very sensitive to his sin. He didn't just say, yeah, I'm a sinner. Whatever, I'm a sinner. No, he knew that he was a sinner. And with a healthy fear of the Lord, and with this tender conscience, he spent many hours in a booth like this. It's called a, a confessional. If you go to a Catholic church, you can see it. It's on the side of a, of a church. It's basically a, it's a, a, a cabinet, usually made out of a, a wooden structure, which the, the priest sits behind a closed door. The people are, are open. You can see them talking with the priest. You can't see the priest himself, perhaps because you don't want to see the surprised look on the priest's face as he hears these confessions. Perhaps you don't want to see the, the priest kind of nodding off of boredom. Perhaps you don't. Who knows? But, it, but it's sort of like you talk into, into this box, and, and there is like a, a lattice on the one side, right, between the, the person, and then you got the priest on the other side. And, and and so you can speak softly and confess your sins to a priest who then, as he hears your confession, will process it, will talk, and it's oftentimes done in a whisper and will we'll talk to you about some kind of act of penance that you need to perform to demonstrate you're really sorry for your sin. And it can be as simple as just go and say a rosary, which is a series of prayers of Hail Marys and Our Fathers that you just, you just pray and and the act is prescribed by the, the priest. And if this act, or, or go give something, or go do something, right? Just in response, demonstrate your, your sorrow. And if it's received well, the priest gives the confessor the assurance. This is, this is what the priest says. He says, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens in the confessional. Now, the Catholic Church says, no, no, no. It doesn't forgive the sins because it's, it's really Jesus and God. 
And it's the name of God that does that, but he's still, I absolve you. I am forgiving you of this sin that you did. And, and in Catholic theology, the biggest of sins are called mortal sins. They must be confessed to a priest to be forgiven. Penance must be done. And Luther, viewing his knowledge of sin, saw all sin as big. So he, su- he saw all sin as needing to confess. Now, of course, right? We're not denying confession. Confession is, is, is super important, right? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? We need to confess our sins to the Lord. And even James 5 speaks about confessing our sins to one another. That, that's not a bad thing, right? If you've sinned against someone, you should confess your sins to them. You should seek forgiveness. You should come in, in humility and grace. But ultimately, right, we need to come to God in confessing our sins and, and, and pleading for His mercy. And that's how we're saved, through confession of sins. So I'm, not, I'm not dissing confession, but the manner of the Catholic confession, and I am, but if you were in, in, that, um, in that life of Luther and had his tender conscience, had his God, you'd realize that there is no hope apart from confessing your sin. And, and, and you might think in a monastery there's not a lot to confess. I mean, here, here you're gathered by, by brothers who are all, all seeking the same things. You're not out in, in the world, right? He was with other priests and other monks all seeking holiness together. They were talking about Bible things. They're, they're, talking, they're praying together. They're reading daily services together. Uh, isn't it easier to seek holiness in the church when you're reminded of God than perhaps when you're out in the world and you, you run against your, your, your shopmates or your teachers or your fellow students or, or wherever you are? It's just harder out there. But here, Luther was on the inn and he knew his sins so well. He was struggling with it. And... and um, so what Luther did is he often confessed his sin to this man, man Johann von Staupitz, who was really his, his mentor. And he would confess his sins frequently. Not always to von Staupitz, but often he would, and often daily. And uh, in fact, on one occasion, he was spent six hours confessing his sin to a priest. And how would you do that? How do you talk to a priest? For six hours about your sins. Well, he, he had a list of sins. Kind of he went over in his mind. Would that go over that? The Ten Commandments, right? He'd work through them. You shall have no other gods before me. And have I had other gods? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I remember yesterday when I took pleasure in watching the Iowa State football game. Yes, yes, I, I, I am. We have other gods before me. Oh, oh yes, yes, we have a, a wood-burning stove, and I've treasured that heat from that more than I treasure. Yes, yes. You shall not have any idols. So, yeah, that stove is an idol. And, and just kind of go through the Ten Commandments. Right? Keeping the Sabbath holy. Honoring your father and mother. Do not murder, not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet anything. And, and he would just go through these lists, and just as things came to mind, he would just confess them and bring them out. And what it shows, really understood his sin. But as much as he understood his sin, it drove his confessors crazy. Um, the famous line of von Staupitz says, look here, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parasite, right? Killing your parents. Blasphemy, adultery, instead of these peccadillos, right? Not just these little things. Come in with some big things to have forgiven. But Luther understood that every sin needed forgiveness, which is true. But here's what I would say, and I would encourage you, is that 
if you have to confess every single one of your sins for it to be forgiven, we are lost and hopeless because there are, there, there's sin and wickedness deep in the depths of your heart that you know not of. Of course, when it comes up, right, it should be easily confessed. But there is much for which we need confession. And to understand, as Luther did, that every sin needs confession, we would go mad like Luther. We would drive our confessors crazy. I'm thankful I'm not a priest to hear that. I just think, by, by the way, side note, what that does to a priest's mind cannot be good. I'm just, I'm just saying, I, I would not envy that position at all in any way. But when we understand our sin as deeply as Luther did, then we understand the grace of Christ is deeper still. So Luther had a, a zeal for God, a knowledge of God, a, a fear of God, a knowledge of sin. Here, here's our fourth list lesson from his time as a monk is the futility of religion. Now in 1510, Luther, after living in the monastery for five years, had opportunity to travel to Rome. There, there was some sort of dispute, I don't know what the dispute was, against all these uh, Augustinian chapters of, um, of um, monasteries. And, and, it, and it was so big that they were going to put it before the Pope and the Pope was going to decide their case. And so representatives from uh, other chapters would all travel to Rome so as to present this case to the Pope who would decide. And, and one of the two representatives from the monastery in Erfurt was Martin Luther. And this, by the way, was his dream come true. He, he gets to go to, to Rome. He gets to go to the Holy Land. Right, is there some vacation spot that you're longing to see or some historic site that you just say, I really want to go there? Right? Whether that's the, um, the orchestra hall in Sydney, that you just say, I want to go there. Or whether you want to go to the, the top floor of the World Trade Centers or, or the Space Needle. Or whether you want to stand in the square of Moscow. Or, or whether you want to go to uh, um, Cape Town, South Africa. I'm not, wherever. Like, like pick this place that is your most ultimate dream. And I would argue that, that Luther's dream even beyond is to go to Rome. I was talking with uh, one of my kids' friends um, last summer, and he was talking about going to uh, Mary College in North Dakota. Uh, Mary College, what is that? It's a Catholic school, and he's so into his kids. He said one of the things that, that they do is they have a semester abroad in Rome. And I'm so excited to spend that, that year, that semester in Rome. And I was like, oh my goodness. Of any place you want to go, you want to go to Rome? But he did, and I, I got a flavor, a little bit of Luther's excitement to go to this holy city, Rome. And when, when Luther traveled there, so it, it was on business on behalf of his monastery, but it was pleasure. I get to go to Rome. When he saw Rome in the distance, he cried out, Hail, holy Rome! And when he got there, he was greatly disappointed because rather than being surrounded by a lot of like-minded priests and monks and cardinals and bishops, he found himself in a cesspool of ignorant, frivolous, immoral priests who were solely in the ministry for the money. They just whipped through Mass for nothing. Just kind of whipped through it. Just kind of get through the church service, get it done. In fact, Luther said that he could say, they could say six or seven Masses before he could finish one. And some preachers are like that. They could finish six or seven sermons before I finish one. All right? But that's what it was like. Because Luther's heart was in the worship, right? He, he really wanted, he really, he really felt it. 
And so when he had an opportunity to lead a mass in Rome, he had the Italian bishops and priests saying, Passa, 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 passa. Means what? You know what that means, but what does it mean? Get going. Pass it along. Come on. Get, get, get moving. Get moving. Get moving. All right? Like, you got you to gotta get this thing going. I know you think that sometimes of me preaching, but that's okay. And when it came to the Eucharist, these priests totally unbelieving. Now, in light of what I said about transubstantiation before, just consider what these priests said. Bread art thou, and bread thou wilt remain. Wine art thou, and wine thou wilt remain. Now, it, it, it's interesting here, right? I, I agree with the sentiments. I don't, think, I don't think it turns into the substance of the body and blood of Jesus. I think that totally misses the whole illustration of what Jesus was trying to do in that Last Supper. It's a remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. It was a symbol. It was, it was a picture, like the, the labors in the vineyard. It's a picture. But for them to say that the elements don't transform in the body and blood of Christ, the heart and soul, the center of the Catholic Church, for them to say that, it, it rep- says that they... Um, totally disbelieved the Mass. And it was like the uttermost blasphemy that, that Luther heard. And, and during his visit to Rome, Luther got a taste of how bad religion can be. And especially in Rome of those who hold the power, right? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And what you saw was there. And, and tonight we're going to talk about indulgences a little bit. There's where you see the the power corrupting, absolutely. These with privileged positions of leadership and influence really abuse their position. But this is nothing new. It's, it's often the case with religious leaders. You think back to the time of Israel and Ezekiel 34 speaks about the, the shepherds who fed themselves rather than the sheep. Malachi speaks about the, the priests who were supposed to give knowledge and they were not doing that. In the case in the days of Jesus, he had Pharisees and Sadducees who were off doing their own things, sitting on the seat of Moses, collecting all the things, and yet Jesus said they were bankrupt in their religion and left the people like sheep without a shepherd. Luther saw the futility of religion. Right, but really this didn't change Luther as much because he was more a principled man. He went by theology more than he did by example, but that, that was there, and I think we also ought to see just religion's futile. Right? Because what we're about is, is we aren't about this religion of do's and don'ts and sacramental this and that. We're, we're about loving God. We're about loving Christ in a real, genuine body. Well, lastly, our last lesson is the righteousness of God. And this leads to the, the saving grace in Luther's life came when his mentor, Johann von Staupis, told him he was being reassigned. He said, no longer are you simply being a monk and a priest, but now you're going to assume the, the role of preaching and assume the role of teaching the Bible at the university. And that's what Staupis said. And just like Moses on the mountain with the Lord, Luther tried to deny it and tried to refuse it and just say, no, I, I wouldn't. And after strong objections, he couldn't win because as when all of life, he always submitted to the elders to, as much as he could. And he submitted to von Stoppitz. And so, on August 1st, 1513, he began his lectures through the Psalms. And in 1515, he began his lectures through the book of Romans. And in 1516... In 17, he was lecturing through Galatians. And uh, his commentaries 
are some of the fruit of that. I don't have many Luther commentaries, but these are two that I have, and they're good historically even to, to cherish. And Baton said of these lectures here that these studies proved to be for Luther the Damascus Road. I mean, these studies are when you're, you're forced to teach because I learn far more in preaching and teaching than you ever will learn. And you do too. If you ever have to teach something, you will learn far more than if you're just receiving it. And when Luther had to figure out the meaning of the Psalms and figure out the meaning of Romans and, and figure out the meaning of Galatians, it was changing him. It was transforming him. And particularly, even as I said here, the, the righteousness of God. That was the key doctrine of it all. And I just want to read some Luther quotes as we, we finish up here this morning about the righteousness of God because this comes to the heart of the gospel of where he believed and where he found hope and a lesson that we can learn. Just not only having a zeal for God, fearing God, understanding sin, seeing the futility of religion, but finally understanding the righteousness of God. Here's what Luther said. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. Okay, it's timely that we're preaching through Romans. He said, but nothing stood in my way but that one expression, the justice of God, or you might say the righteousness of God. The same, same word, same concept, same thing he's thinking about. Because what stood in his way, he says, I took it to mean that justice by, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. And my situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet, I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what it is that he meant by this justice of God or righteousness of God. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Romans 1, 17. Then I grasped that the justice of God is not, is, is that righteousness, so I grasp the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God, the righteousness of God, had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul came to me to be the gate to heaven. And then he exhorts us, right? If you have a true faith, that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. That is, to behold God in faith, that you should look upon His fatherly, friendly heart, in which there's no anger, nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see Him rightly, but looks only on a curtain, as if a dark cloud had been drawn across His face. There's Luther talking about the righteousness of God. For him, understanding the righteousness of God was the, the very thing that entered him into understanding the grace of God in Christ. Because until then, it was he's trying to achieve, he's trying to appease, he's trying to satisfy this angry God who's angry at his sin, he knows. 
But coming to understand that the righteous live by faith, totally changed. I want to read his commentary then on Romans 3.21 to listen to what he says. Which says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Because you have the wrath of God, chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 21, the righteousness of God being manifested. He says, St. Augustine writes in the ninth chapter of his book concerning the Spirit and the letter, quote, and he learned from Augustine, went to an Augustinian monastery, Paul does not speak of the righteousness of God by which God is righteous, but of that with which he clothes a person when he justifies the ungodly. And again, Augustine continues, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. That is, God imparts it to the believer by the Spirit of grace without the work of the law or without the help of the law. Through the law, God opens men's eyes so he sees his helplessness and by faith takes refuge in his mercy and is so healed. The apostle, therefore, does not describe the righteousness of God by which he is essentially righteous, but the righteousness by which a sinner is justified, which they can obtain only by faith in Christ. And Luther understood the the righteousness of God, which is really the heart and essence of the gospel. It is what we need to believe. I think of any passage of Scripture that, um, that explains Martin Luther. It's Romans 10, 1 through 4. I just want to read it, comment lightly, and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll close until tonight. We're memorizing this in our kids' club. Brothers, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, talking about is that they may be saved, right? They're unsaved. He's got a heart that they might be saved. And Paul writes this, Romans 10 two, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law to everyone, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this, he says this, I'm praying for these Jews because they're lost. I bear them witness they have a zeal for God the Jews have this zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And what's this knowledge that they don't have it in accordance with? It's the righteousness of God because they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Instead, they seek to establish his own, which is exactly what Luther was doing. Rather than submit to God's righteousness in Christ, he says, for Christ is the end of a law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that was the key that unlocked the life of Luther, and that's the key that unlocks our heart in the gospel of Christ. Well, there's Luther and some lessons from the the life of Luther. Tonight we're going to look at indulgences and some of the things that that flowed forth from Luther's nailing these theses upon the door at Wittenberg, and um, just as good. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray that we would learn these lessons well for ourselves. Lord, I pray if anything, the Rock Valley Bible Church would be known for, would be known for having a, a zeal for, for God. God, that we would be passionate about following you. God, that people come into our midst who are, who are godless and they would, they would see us and think it's strange that we would love this invisible God. And yet, God, we do. May it be evident. God, may we understand also how we ought to fear you. God, that is the beginning of wisdom. That's the first thing to learn in math. So our, our counting numbers is the fear of you. God, instill that fear in us. 
God, in, in the right way, may we never come complacent to you. God, help us also to know our sin. God, I, I do believe the deeper we know our sin, the, the greater will be our love for the Savior. Luke chapter 7, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who's been, for, been forgiven little loves little. And So God, teach us of our sin. Show us our sin. Not for morbid introspection, but for glory of Jesus, the cross of Christ would be made greater and manifest. And also the futility of religion. God, I pray we would see that. That what we do here isn't a ritual. God, it, it's not, not some transaction that we do to make ourselves right with you. The reason we obey is because we love you. As Peter says, though you do not see him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. God, that's why we obey, because we love you and we serve you. That's why we seek to reach out to others, because we love, because you loved. And finally, God, I pray for the, the righteousness of God to sink deep into our hearts, that, that we would know, God, of what it means that, that we are righteous in Jesus, that by faith and trust in you, you take our faith and you count it to us as righteousness. Oh God, may your, your grace be upon us. And so, Father, I also pray that as we gather again this evening, I pray it would be a great, fun time for the kids. I pray as they learn a lot about Luther and the Reformation, that they would be encouraged. May it be a time of fun as they dress up and as we enjoy that. And God, we would pray again this 500th anniversary, God, that we would just look back at history and thank you for what you've done. You've taken us out of darkness. You've brought us into light. We once were on the Damascus Road, and now the, the light has shone. And it's shown to Luther, and through him has spread uh, throughout the whole world. And so we thank you for the days of the Reformation and what it means for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.